Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You are listening to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Laura Stanley, and it is Martin Luther King Day 2015. And since we're a relatively new show, this is our first opportunity to observe this holiday, a day that really speaks to the heart and soul of all of the content that you hear on Inside School Food. We are all about, and you are all about, serving up food justice and socioeconomic justice through the National School Lunch and Breakfast Programs. So I'm really thrilled to have a very special guest with us today to talk about just that. She is Audrey Rowe, Administrator for the Food and Nutrition Service at the USDA, and she leads FNS efforts to end hunger and obesity, not just through school meals, but 14 other federal nutrition assistance programs, including WIC and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistant Program, uh, or SNAP. Audrey, we are so excited to have you here with us today. Welcome to Inside School Food. Well, thank you, and I'm really excited to be on the show today. It's a very important discussion that you want to have. Great, great. Um, You have been serving at FNS for more than five and a half years, where you led the effort to pass the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010. And having devoted the last 20 years of your career to the welfare of people in vulnerable populations, particularly low-income women and children, um, Healthy Hunger-Free Kids 2010 must have felt like a watershed moment, not just for school meals programs, um, but for you personally. So I'd like to talk about that and and about what's on your mind as we head into Child Nutrition Reauthorization 2015, or CNR. Um, but first, Great. let's talk about today. I, I love what you told me about your own observance of, of King Day. How do you like to mark the occasion? Well, I like to mark the occasion by participating in some service projects. Um, engaging in some way in recognizing the work that Dr. King started and the work that still needs to be done. And so um, today I'm doing the show, but I hope this afternoon to be engaged in some other activities. Great. Well, thank you for including us in your observance. Um, if, if we're going to talk about food justice at school, uh, maybe we should start out with some words on the origin story of our school nutrition sure. programs. Yeah. Well, you know, the the growth of the, the beginning of the food nutrition program or school nutrition school lunch program started back into the during the time of the depression when you had millions of school children who were unable to pay for their lunches and with limited family resources families were unable to provide meals for their children at home and there was a concern among the public health officials of the danger of malnutrition among our children. And so in 1935, Congress uh, passed a law that took surplus food from the market and turned it over to schools to operate lunch programs. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then, you know, by 1942, we had they were we were serving more than six million children in school lunch programs. So clearly, um, there was a recognition of the need. Um, and then in 1946, Congress passed legislation to make the school food program permanent. And it was signed into law by uh, President Harry Truman. So almost 70 years ago, we began this program. And today, we're feeding about 21 million children in school lunch programs. Right, right. So a lot has happened in those many decades um, to today. But let, let's fast forward to to this year. Um, how has mm-hmm. the agenda changed? I mean, who, who are the children we're trying to benefit now? Is it... Is, is, is to some extent, it's the same set of issues as it was way back in 1946, right? Well, that's exactly right. And and when I was thinking about uh, um, the conversation we were going to have today and look back at some data, I said, you know, I we're still having the same and addressing the same need. We're addressing the needs of children who are in lower socioeconomic uh, families, um, families who do not have the resources to provide a meal, less more healthy meal for their child. Um, we still have children who are going to bed at night um, on a weekend, certainly not being sure what meals they are going to be able to have during the weekend. Um, if you think of a three-day weekend like this, we have children who I've observed after a three-day weekend at the breakfast line when school opens mm. arrive early. Right. Because this is the first meal, full meal they'll have since they left school on Friday. So the children whose needs are being met in the free and reduced price uh, lunches and um, and breakfast programs are the same children that were being served when this program started. Right, right. And and I should mention that um, last Friday we had new statistics released by the um, Southern Education Foundation that says that the latest data they have is for 2013, and it says that students who qualify for free or reduced-priced um, school meals now comprise the majority of U.S. school children. That's 51 percent. Um, that's up from 48 percent in 2011. 42 and 2% in 2006. And in 1989, that number was less than 32%. So that's pretty stunning. Yeah, it is stunning. And the need continues to grow. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's um, why it is so critical that schools, you know, one of the uh, options that the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act created was the option for the community eligibility. So mm-hmm. if the school had more than 40% of its children um, who were certified in um, programs, um, they would then be eligible for to apply, and the, all of the students in that school would be eligible to participate in the school lunch program. I mean, that's critical because one of the challenges that children face is the stigma attached to participating in these programs. For the very young, it is not as significant as it is for older children. And with the community eligibility option and all children being able and eligible to have a lunch, um, then you, re- you eliminate the stigma. And, you know, part of what we have faced in the last few years, in the last year, I should say, in this program is school districts that have low free and reduced price uh, 
student populations um, making decisions not to participate in the program. And so what worries me all the time is what happens to the healthy foods that these children um, were receiving in the school lunch program um, that they may not be receiving as they, uh, as the school withdraws from the program. And many of the more socioeconomic um, children in from higher socioeconomic families have healthy food at home. Right. So if you have healthy food at home, the children that we're trying to reach don't always have healthy food at home, and they also don't have access. Um, they live in communities, whether it's urban or rural, that does not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, um, does not give them access to low-fat uh, milk or cheeses or various things that we know are critical if we're going to deal with the obesity and some of the health-related consequences of what children are eating. Right, right. So you mentioned a couple things I'd like to um, unpack further. Um, first of all, as, you know, as we head into CNR this year, um, right. do you see this plunge into food insecurity, which we, we now know is really growing, emerging as part of the political dialogue around school meals, especially given what you just said about there being so many communities that are not cognizant or not experiencing that situation. Right. You know, I I hope that the dialogue will be centered around how do we put kids first mm-hmm. and what are their needs going to be um, so that they can be contributing members of our society as they grow up. Um, and what I'm concerned is as we see these numbers rising, we also see uh, and have dialogue uh, with regard to changing or turning back or or um, uh, putting moratorium on the continued um, implementation, if you will, mm-hmm. of the program in schools. Ninety percent of the school districts are currently participating in the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. Mm-hmm. Now, that does not in the school meals. That doesn't mean they're not having problems. Right. Yes, they're having problems getting right good products. Um, the food doesn't, uh, um, you know, they're having problems trying to figure out how to get the right taste points. I mean, I'm learning more about taste points um, than I ever thought I'd, I would need to know. <laughs> right. But making sure that, you know, students, when they are eating the food, that it, it satisfies them. Um, so you have a lot of, of those activities going on, and then you have the pressure of uh, school districts who are saying um, it's too costly for us. And so instead of the dialogue of focusing on how do we provide more resources to this program, uh, the dialogue is, is, seems to be centered around how do we um, curtail implementation or how do we put a moratorium or how do we make changes in the program that I fear will take us back instead of keeping us moving forward. Right, right. So it, it, it's, it seems that what you're talking about are the problems faced by uh, school districts that have uh, a less than 50 percent or a lower rate of students eligible for free and reduced priced meals. Um, and I know that you've been talking a lot to those districts because you travel all the time, don't you? you you've been visiting yes. districts all yes. over the country. Um, so, you know, those districts, you know, and just returning to the conversation about socioeconomic justice and, and hunger, and you mentioned um, community eligibility as being so critical to addressing hunger. Um, and yet it seems that the, these these districts that are, are facing a different set of issues with regard to paying for 
school meals because they can't be enrolled in community eligibility. They're under a different set of pressures. Um, So, you know, what are they telling you when you visit them about, uh, you know, how it's working for them? Well, you know, it's it's a difference between when I'm talking to the to the uh, administration officials, uh, the food service directors, et cetera, uh, the, the the school lunch ladies, as people like to call them, who are serving the food, and the students. Mm-hmm. Um, quite often, when I'm talking to the students, um, their complaint is more the way the food tastes. Um, they have, um, you know, they they enjoy having the salad bars. They want to have. They know it's important to have healthy options. I was at one school right after we implemented, and the students were very concerned um, that they had lost their soup. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem was the whole grain issue with regard to how you prepare noodle soups or, or what some of the ingredients requirements would be. Um, but the students were not opposed to the program. The students wanted what they were used to having, which is their soups. And I made a commitment to them that they would get their soups, and they did get their soups back in the school, in the cafeteria, uh, within a few months. The concern from the um, others was on the bottom line. Mm-hmm. We are not having children don't want to pay for, um, uh, you know, low state. They, they don't want to pay for foods that they don't enjoy. Um, they don't want to pay for sandwiches or, or even a pizza that is low-fat, whole-grain crust. Um, and they take those complaints, um, and instead of the schools working with those students to try and address those concerns, mm-hmm. um, the response is more toward, um, we're losing money, we cannot continue to afford this, um, and therefore we have to pull out of the program. Only 18% of our students are, or 12% of our students are, or less than 30% of our students are free and reduced price. Mm-hmm. So we have to find a way to bring the other students back. The other group that, you know, I see, and I saw this myself, where students would call their parents and say, I don't like what's being served. And, you know, I saw... Uh, I've, I have seen um, uh, uh, food trucks, uh, the um, uh, pizza trucks, oh my goodness. Uh, pulling up to school oh no. and, yeah. walk, and then walking in with several pizzas that parents have all ordered for their children um, so that they can have what the children want. So I think you have um, the school officials, uh, I would hope, would be much more focused on how do we make this work than um, um, accepting that it cannot work and therefore we need to pull completely out of the program. Right. And, and you have told me that you feel that the way forward, not just for districts where there's a low free and reduced race, but all districts, the way forward is through taste. It's a culinary solution. It's through authentic, real flavor. And, and you've also said to me that real food is, is a right, not a privilege across the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, can you talk about that? Sure. I, I, I fully think feel that every child should have um, access to food that is good, that tastes good, and that is healthy for them. I think that's a right and a responsibility of the nation to make sure that children have that available to them. 
Um, I think the, the other part of this, however, is that, um, you know, sometimes we, um, in, as, as I've traveled around and I've talked to lots of students, we need to get um, chefs into the schools. Mm-hmm. We need to get people who are, are really used to making food tasteful. And in those school districts, uh, I was out in California, I was in uh, the Midwest, um, I was just uh, was hoping to have visited a school in uh, Virginia this past week. Unfortunately, we did not make it because of an uh, ice storm. Mm-hmm. But these were schools where um, the staff uh, were working very hard to ensure that they were giving the students the kind of experience that they would have if they walked into any other culinary establishment. Um, that the food was presented well, um, that the layout of the cafeteria is pleasing, and that when students come through, the food taste um, has the kind of taste that makes them receptive to it and, and enjoy it. Right. And I have seen that happen. I've seen school districts, Brownsville, Texas, for example, very poor school district. Students got together with faculty, um, with um, some of the local uh, uh, chefs in the area. They put together a school cafeteria that you or I or any one of your listeners would walk into and say, wow, now this is what a school cafeteria should look like. We would be, uh, we would be happy to eat there. It was almost a cross between a kind of a Starbucks and a, and a, and a McDonald's layout. Mm-hmm. But the food tasted good. It was bright. It was colorful. The layout was, was of the cafeteria was very pleasing when you walked in and that's the thing that i see when i walk into a school and i see the school cafeteria and it's got bright colors and it has posters and you know um it has um um, nutrition information it gives information on the nutritional value of some of the foods that they're eating um it shows pictures of the farmers who's uh, food is being brought in um, and being prepared for the students. You see a different um, acceptance of the changes in the food patterns, in the meal patterns. You see the acceptance of fresh fruits and vegetables. I mean, I've had students who I walk through the line with them, and they remind me that I need to get my radishes or I need to get, and I ask them, you know, are, do you enjoy this? And it's, yes. I've had students <laughs> who say, I'm so happy we have broccoli. I wish we had it every day. Right. Um, they're introduced to new foods, and chefs are able to come in and provide that um, additional expertise. You know, uh, many of the, of, the, of the cooks who work in these school cafeterias, they want the food to taste good. They have been working in these cafeterias for years, um, and so they're used to cooking in a certain way. And the use of more herbs, uh, many schools have school gardens. Mm-hmm. so that you can take the herbs from the school gardens and put it into the meals that they're, that uh, the students are receiving. Um, just the basic um, culinary information that programs like Chef Moves to Schools and others are providing to schools, when you see that happening, mm-hmm. then you can also see um, that plus lunchroom techniques um, that we have been uh, promoting um, through various programs to make sure 
just the layout of the cafeteria, as I said earlier, and making the cafeteria a pleasing place. The other challenge, and it's one that we have no control over directly, but certainly um, schools and parents and others need to think about, Mm -hmm. is the amount of time a student has to eat. Oh, yes. You know, in some schools, uh, by the time they walk in, get their tray, sit down and eat, they may have 10 minutes. Um, to eat what is on that tray. Well, if you have fruits or vegetables um, that require a lot more, a little more chew time, if you will, mm-hmm. um, they're not going to get through it in that length of time. So expanding the hours that students have available to them to have lunch, um, creating a, um, having the you know, fiscal activity, whether the fiscal activity is before lunch, and in many schools they move to fiscal activity before lunch, mm-hmm. and students come in, they're ready to eat. So there are certainly um, challenges to the ch- to change. Any change require has challenges, but this one is solvable if people will put their energy into trying to make sure we can address the challenges as opposed to trying to legislate changes. Right. And I love the way you you see all of this as a piece, Audrey. And and, um, you have touched just in the last, you know, five to ten minutes on so much of the content that we have covered here in Inside School Food. Creative solutions, Mm -hmm. uh, the Smarter Lunchrooms movement solutions. um, And and we do spend a lot of time on the show talking about authentic flavor, uh, scratch cooking solutions. Solutions farm to school. So, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. exciting to hear um, the head of the FNS uh, talking about these things in the same way. Um, Audrey, we need to take a quick station break. Um, uh, folks, you are listening to Inside School Food, a special episode for Martin Luther King Day 2015 with Audrey Rowe of USDA's Food and Nutrition Service. Uh, stay with us because we are going to talk about recent advances in breakfast when we come back. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Welcome back to Inside School Food. Uh, We're talking today about school lunch as a powerful tool for serving up socioeconomic justice at school with Audrey Rowe, administrator for the FNS at USDA, or we have been talking about school lunch, and now I'd like to talk about breakfast. Um, All right. Right, and breakfast in the classroom especially has recently taken off. Why is it so popular? Well, you know, it is popular. It 
it's popular now because there's a recognition by schools that when children have breakfast before the day starts, and breakfast in the classroom is right after the bell while they're checking attendance and doing all of the administrative tasks that they do, children are eating their lunch, I'm eating their breakfast. What schools are finding is that learning is, takes place, it's better. Mm-hmm. They're finding fewer discipline problems. They're finding fewer trips to the nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, they're finding greater attention span, and they're also finding that it's not disruptive. I mean, one of the things that um, that uh, many principals and schools resist is because they think it will get in the way, it'll be disruptive, and it takes schools who and principals who have found that this is not a disruption, as a matter of fact, it is an asset um, to the education day for children to have a healthy breakfast in the morning. I mean, I know in the morning, I mean, if, if when I get hungry, I mean, just imagine you're getting started in school at 8.30, quarter to 9, by, by 10.30 or 11, you're hungry, your stomach is growling. Uh, I often say to people, I'm evil when I get hungry. I don't pay attention to anything. <laughs> so I am sure children uh, face the same type of challenge. And um, where we have had resistance to breakfast, uh, you know, a, a few years ago uh, in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, Chicago public schools wanted to roll out breakfast. Um, there was resistance from um, the north side of Chicago, a more affluent part of Chicago, because the parents there felt it may be disruptive to the academic day. Um, however, as the board and others said, no, this is important, we're going to roll it out. Uh, schools have participated, and those who have participated um, recognize that it has been a benefit to their school program as opposed to any way distracting from the academic performance of the students who are there. Um, modern school breakfast is, is tailored to meet the needs of, of all children um, in the school schedules, uh, in the uh, school environment. I've been to schools where the students come in and there's the hallway as they're walking in and getting off their school buses. They just go down the line and pick up their bags and take them into their classrooms and start eating. Mm-hmm. Um, milk is then distributed. There are other programs where they actually deliver uh, a set number of meals to the to the classroom. When it's finished, the kids, the children take their um, their wrappers, they put them in the trash, and they're ready to learn. And so it always strikes me when I hear parents, when I hear um, school administrators and others say that this would not be a benefit to our school because we need to focus on academics, um, we need to focus on getting them ready for tests, we need to focus on those uh, on that which is our charge. And my response is, well, but don't you think that your students could focus better and retain more and therefore participate more if they weren't hungry. Well, those those complaints are coming from more well-to-do households where getting breakfast into the kids first thing in the morning is less of an issue. So what happened in Chicago was that I think fam- families needed to understand that um, this was a benefit to everyone um, in the long term. Um, so, right. And my understanding is that most sites, uh, elementary sites now in Chicago, do have breakfast in the classroom, and it's going very well. 
It's going very well. And they're seeing, I mean, when I talk to the food service director or when I visit Chicago and talk to principals primarily, um, I'll ask them, the question, how is it going? They'll say it's terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk to, food, uh, to school nurses, they'll say, this was the best thing that we could have done for our students. We don't see as many visits. Students aren't coming in with tummy aches, et cetera. So it is an important part of making sure that our our children are fed, um, that they're fed healthy, nutritious food, because the health benefits are so enormous. We're seeing increases in hypertension and diabetes. Um, Those are all preventable. And if we can not only introduce students and have them embrace healthier lifestyles from a very early age and learn about nutrition, which you can do as part of the curriculum, school wellness programs, um, should be talking to students about choices that they make, not just at school, but when they're not in school. Um, on Saturdays when, you know, they drop by the local uh, fast food, how do they choose between what is healthier for them um, and how do we help them be educated consumers? And I think educating, uh, being an educated consumer starts with nutrition information. Part of what we're doing also is we're now, uh, we've just issued new re- regulations, uh, proposed regulations, I should say, for um, family daycare, for child daycare uh, programs, mm-hmm. uh, family daycare homes and centers. Because, again, uh, we're looking at what happens to children when they are in family daycare homes and in centers. How can we begin the process of introducing them to uh, lower-fat milk? How do we begin the process of introducing them to low-fat cheese products? And how do we begin the process of introducing them um, to healthier whole-grain options? By doing it early, mm-hmm. we begin to de- develop, you know, students begin to develop an appreciation and understanding of what it takes to have a healthy diet. And, and I often think, isn't that really critical to our, our future? It's critical to our, our homeland security. When mm-hmm. the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act was passed, I mean, one of the groups that um, was very vocal was mission readiness, mm-hmm. not only as it relates to um, having um, um, young men and women who can protect their country, but just in terms of um, the National Guard and protecting our resources right here, you know, from flood and disaster response, et cetera. We need people who can serve in those roles. And if we're finding obesity or hypertension or diabetes or other health-related illnesses, preventing them from from being able to join and fulfill their dreams, because many do want to have a career to fulfill their dreams, then I think it, again, is a responsibility for all of us to work toward um, a, a, a focus on keeping our, our kids first, keeping our focus on making sure that justice, food justice means that every child can have access to 
food that is healthy, nourishing, and nutritious. I'm I'm so glad you brought that up, Audrey, because I was going to ask you anyway um, about, you know, food, socioeconomic justice in school meals as a national security issue and hunger as a national security issue. Um, I'd like to just switch gears um, as we as we wrap up to talk a little bit about the media, um, we talk, which we also mm. talk about a lot on our show. Mm-hmm. It's the first month of 2015, and the media is just warming up for CNR coming up this fall. What are you observing so far? Well, you know, it's interesting that I'm glad you asked that. I was at meeting with some uh, food service directors um, uh, a few months ago, in and they were from uh, all over the state. And one of them said, you know, if the media would just not continue to perpetuate the um, the challenges that we had in the beginning of the program mm-hmm. and would start recognizing that things have changed, that students are able to um, have, um, and schools are able to meet the meal pattern changes, um, it would be so much better for us. We feel like we are fighting the media, where, which are then informing the parents who are then calling us and complaining. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen a mix. I mean, I clearly am seeing more and more stories that focus on the um, the, the challenges, but also the successes, mm-hmm. um, and particularly uh, being able to articulate the viewpoint from students and from uh, food service directors who have been successful. I mean, one of the um, you know, the media. I know, you know, the, the what attracts attention um, and gets their um, their stories out. But um, you know, I just think it's important that it's balanced. Yes. And I haven't always felt that it's balanced. Right. Um, when we look at what something picks up on a um, on a tweet or on a blog um, that's negative, it almost takes on a life of its own. Um, and all we want is balance. Right. And I, I sometimes wonder if the hollowing out of our local press corps, uh, community newspapers, has something to do with this because um, it, it's hard for a local newspaper or TV station to dispatch reporters to pick up on the progress that's happening in their school systems. So, um, you know, I, I, I like to challenge the media on this show to, uh, you know, listen to the whole story and go eat, you know, lunch at school. Find out what's really going on because it might be a good story. That is, when I travel, and, you know, one of the reasons I travel constantly is because I'm able to bring the media to the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and the media not only gets a chance to sample, and I've had reporters say, this is not my school lunch. This is so much better <laughs> right. um, than anything I am. I've encouraged reporters to go to school and where they have nieces and nephews and their own children to go and have lunch, not as the reporter on that day, but as the parent or, or aunt or uncle, etc., just to experience what the children are experiencing in these changes and to talk to them. I've had reporters who say to me, uh, who have said to me, I'm sorry, that um, I have this gone to school with my son and all of a sudden he's eating something that we try and get him to eat at home and he doesn't eat it there. 
Right. But in school, because his peers are all eating the carrots or the peas or the broccoli or whatever it is, he's eating it as well. Right. Um, so I think the media, um, and I'm always encouraging parents, you know, you have take your child to work day. We'd like to have, you know, children take your parent to lunch, school lunch day. Um, and have parents really see what is going on and not just accept what they're hearing in the media and sometimes what their children are telling them because they, they want something different. Right. Um, and where you have open campuses, that's a real challenge. Of course, yes. That's um, another topic right yes. there. That's a, that's a tough one. Well, what better way to, to fuse political tensions and keep emphasis on, the, on good food and the welfare of our kids than simply exposing the media to the good work that, that we see happening. So um, I imagine in the coming year you're going to be traveling more to attract more attention. To, good for you. <laughs> um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we need to wrap up, Audrey. Um, but, I, again, we're so grateful to you for including us in your observance of Martin Luther King Day. Um, I hope you'll join us again, and best of luck in your travels in the coming year. Thank you, and I'm so glad you chose this topic for today. All right. You have been listening to Audrey Rowe, Administrator for the FNS at the USDA. This is Inside School Food. All of our episodes, including today's, are archived on the Heritage Radio Network website and at InsideSchoolFood.com. If you are a regular listener, please let us know by signing up for our newsletter, our Facebook page, or our news feed on Twitter. Twitter. Uh, this really helps us. Um, and if you would like uh, Inside School Food on your mobile device, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. I am your host, Laura Stanley. Thank you for listening. Uh, next week, join us for a conversation about some very daring and creative innovations in the Central Kitchen at Minneapolis Public Schools. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.